and welcome to History's What If Podcast. I am your host, the Dr. Philip Reese. My co-host, the Professor Carmine Fasano, is currently in the laboratory as we speak with today's special guest. If you're new to our podcast, we explore the what-ifs during historical events. We are able to do so with the help of a computer application the Professor and myself created. It's called PUG, the Parallel Universe Generator. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, we did an episode, What If President Barack Obama Was Assassinated in 2012? We entered that information into PUG. Say hello, PUG. Hello, Doctor. PUG then calculates the outcomes, and then we present those bullet points to the audience. Thank you very much, PUG. You're very welcome, Doctor. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. That way you can listen to all of our new episodes every single Monday. This week, we are going to dig into automobiles, in particular, the EV1. A little bit of history lesson. The EV1 was a car created by GM, totally electric, and it came out in the early 90s. A little over 1,100 units were created, and you could only lease them in certain states in the U.S., including California and Arizona. They were only in production for about three years and was discontinued. If you want to know more about the EV1, I highly recommend the documentary, Who Killed the Electric Car? This week's guest is Benjamin Hunting. He is a co-host of a podcast called Unnamed Automotive Podcast. That's correct, Unnamed Automotive Podcast. He pretty much has the coolest job. You see, Benjamin and his co-host, they get to drive pretty much every car under the sun. They also have a wacky sense of humor. And they have a knowledge of cars that is unfound. I highly recommend that you download their podcast. They are on Apple and all of the other major players. I wish I had his job. I pretty much work with the professor and Pug all day. No offense, Pug. No offense, doctor. Pug, are you ready with your calculations this week? Thank you very much, Pug. I am going to go ahead and join Benjamin and the professor after our gravity's bullet points from Pug. We will be right back. So, Benjamin, before we get started, how did he get into your podcast, the Unnamed Automotive Podcast? Because I know you're a journalist. Yeah, uh, I've been writing about cars for over a decade now uh, as a freelance writer. What is, what are, I should say, your top five cars, dream cars, all the time? I'm sure you get yeah, well, it's, all the time, too. But I have to ask It's a tough it. question. I, I mean, it. these days, I'm not so much uh, into the new cars as I am the old cars. Um, it's the same as when I was growing up. So I, I tend to like stuff that's, uh, the older I get, the lighter I want my cars to be. Uh, I seem to think less and less about horsepower the, as the years go by. So I, I'm into stuff like uh, I have a, a track car from the 70s. It's a 78 Datsun 280Z. And that's the the last model year of the original generation Z car. Um, I like that a lot. I, I've always been a fan of the second generation Viper. Um, yeah, well, when I was a, when I was a kid, I was into Mopar muscle. So cars like the uh, GTX, the second gen GTX and the Dodge Charger. Were, were on my list. And uh, I've always liked the the mid-60s version of the Lincoln Continental, which was uh, the, the four-door slab-sided convertible. That was the one with the suicide doors. E- exactly, yeah. I hear they're bringing those back in the new model. 
Well, I don't think so because the the they brought the continental name back uh, recently, but they're killing it in the next couple of years. Uh, it had a similar kind of look without the the suicide doors, but I'm not sure if they're going to make a a second generation of that vehicle because uh, no one's buying sedans anymore, so it's hard to justify that business case. It must have been a fake photo, Benjamin. They fooled me again. It's coming from a man from Detroit as well, too. I should not. How the prototypes always are, man. They overdo it, and you get all excited, and then it comes out into production, and you're like, oh. Yeah, someone dials back the 24-inch rims on the passenger sedan that that, uh, the designers were so in love with. So my favorite car, dream car always, the Shelby Cobra. 65, 66, the blue with the white stripe. Yeah, I've been a fan of the the brother of that car, the uh, De- the Daytona Coupe, oh. which uh, that's probably my favorite uh, visual design um, from Detroit to, to to ever. I know it was never really a production car; it was just built to race. But I just think the lines of that car are gorgeous. What about you, Carmine? For myself, I really love just the the old '60s Cadillacs, like the '68 Coupe de Ville is probably like probably my top car that I'd ever want, and then. Um, any vintage BMW, like the eighties, um, like six thirty series, like coupes. Oh my God. Beautiful cars. The, the shark nose cars. Oh yeah. So electric cars, that's going to be today's what up, especially the EV one that stopped production back in 1999. Of course I watched the one movie, whatever happened to the electric car that came out back in 2006, did some research over the past two weeks. Benjamin, can you fill me in on why that car was made? Well, like most electric cars, the EV1 happened because of government regulations. In the mid or early 90s, California Air Resources Board had decided that if you wanted to keep selling cars in California, by 1998, you would have to have 2% of your manufacturer's fleet be completely emissions-free. Yeah, that- and that that was a tall order. Uh, I mean, it's still a tall order, <laughs> but uh, in that era, it was it was unheard of. And uh, California had horrible air quality at that yeah. time, and they were trying to figure out how to clean things up. And this seemed to be a good way to do it, given that California is also one of the biggest markets in the United States for automobiles. And I know it wasn't just GM. Ford had the Ford Ranger EV. And uh, uh, Toyota had a bunch of cars, too. The uh, Honda had something called the EV Plus around the same time, and Toyota eventually made a battery-powered RAV4, which was their standard gas RAV4 just with an electric Why do you motor. think these, these cars didn't take off? I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there. Well, the thing with regulations is that they're great from a legislative standpoint, but anytime you try to regulate the market in terms of consumer demand, it becomes a lot trickier. And these cars, for they're nothing like the electric cars that we have today in the sense that the range was extremely limited. I think the EV1, it could go between 80 and 100 miles on a single charge because battery technology that GM chose to use was uh, standard lead acid, if I, if I remember correctly. So it was a two-seater car with a very limited range, and it was not available for sale. It was mm-hmm. only available for lease. I can't remember how much the payments were. I want to say $300, $350 a month for that era. So that's not inexpensive. And uh, all those things together, uh, it, it, it was a it was a pilot project. It was a test project. And um, it's not necessarily a real-world solution for the majority of car buyers. So what would have happened if GM went all out with the EV1 production? 
even after 1999. Again, with all the research I read, there wasn't really a viable answer why they pulled it. Some said it was because of profits. I've heard some conspiracy theories saying that it was because they just don't want to pour any more money into this because of big oil. I don't have the answer, but I do want to discuss what if they did not stop the production. I was going to say, during like my research, man, like the amount of conspiracy theories that just came that came across, it was just like ridiculous. It was so hard to like wade through on this subject, like you know what what was actual fact and you know what what was hearsay. But man, it was it was overwhelming at times reading through some of this. Conspiracy theories definitely abound about this car, but there's some economic realities I think that tie into the vehicle as well. the The stated price for GM's lease, I think, not that you could buy the car if you wanted to, but I believe for leasing purposes they gave it a price of thirty three thousand nine ninety five. I think the actual price per vehicle uh, for GM their their cost was between one hundred thousand and two hundred fifty thousand dollars. If you count, depending on how you do your accounting, if you're if you're including all of the research and development that went into it, if you're including all the materials, because there were, I think, only just under 1,200 of these were built. So it, it, GM was not recouping its costs. And very, very few electric cars out there generate a profit. And in fact, very few hybrid cars generate a profit either for companies. Most of these vehicles are built as prestige vehicles that are intended to lift the image of the brand kind of – I don't want to say greenwashing because – there is a concerted effort to make these cars as ecologically friendly as possible, but they're not profit centers for the majority of car companies. So I'm completely able to believe GM took a look at this enormous black hole on their balance sheet and said, you know, we've spent about a billion dollars if you include marketing costs uh, on this vehicle. We built 1,200 of them. No one's really interested in buying 10,000 of them, let alone 5,000 of them. What are we going to do? And I think that that's when you pull the plug. The market wasn't there yet, and the car didn't look that good either. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's an acquired yeah. taste. I mean, the, it, hybrids of that era, as well as the electric cars, it was almost like people in, in the design studios have been told, make it look like the future. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like they all sat down and watched RoboCop. And they were le- after that, they said, OK, I think I know it's it's all about side skirts and and a lot of glass. And then you ended up with cars, not like just the EV one, but the first generation Prius and the first generation Honda Insight had a lot of those similar types of design cues. Hey, I think they did them on purpose just to ruin the I, car. You know that? <laughs> <laughs> that was some of the conspiracy theories yeah. I read, too. But like, you know, people will, will argue back too that, you know, because of the shape is, you know, by design, you know, for, you know, low resistance and, you know, to maximize, yeah. you know, um, the, you know, the use of the battery and, you know, get more mileage, so to speak. Is it still call mileage on an electric car? I, I would guess so. Yeah. Uh, range, I guess you would say. Range, yeah, range. there you go. That's the correct term. But yeah, so, you know, just something interesting that I found, but it's just like, yeah, like, could you make an uglier car possible unless maybe you're Homer Simpson? Well, the actually, I took a look at the before we recorded the Honda EV Plus, which is a contemporary to the EV one. They didn't build nearly as many, but it had a more advanced battery. And the shape they chose for that car, it looks like an 80s hatchback imported from Europe. <laughs> like uh, it's not like a Renault or a Citroen or something like that. It's a very, very generic look. So it's not it's not aggressively ugly, but it's certainly not attractive. So what if they still push this product out? What if GM say, you know what, we're losing money? that's still pushing us through. How do you think the first three years will look? 
I think if you look at the case of the Prius, you would have the closest analog to the business model that they would have had to use for the EV1. And it took the Prius a really long time to take off. I think the Prius came out in 97, 98, so right around the same time as the EV1. But unlike the EV1, you could buy it and it stayed on sale. It didn't just it wasn't just available for a few short years and then they cut off. There was I believe GM had a huge waiting list of list potential they leasers. Did. Um, and, uh, so the Prius was doing below 5,000 units a year for a long time. And then around 2001, it started to triple. And then, uh, each year after that, until they got to around 2005, it really exploded. So you're looking at almost a decade between a handful of cars being sold and then a hundred thousand cars being sold. And I'm using Prius because it's, it's a rough contemporary of the car that's still with us today, but it's also the best case scenario for any hybrid car. I mean, they've sold 1.8 million Priuses in Japan alone, and I believe 1.7 in the United States. So that's a huge number of cars. It's, it is the definition of a success story. I don't think EV1 would have done similar business because of the cost. Uh, $33,000 is, is still, that's the average transaction price of a new car today in 2019. So if you adjust that for inflation, that's quite a bit at the end of the 90s, early 2000s. And as you guys have pointed out, not the most attractive car and it only seats two people. So I think it would have been a niche vehicle. Yeah. And I think maybe you would have seen them hit 10,000 sales within three or four years, maybe. It really would have depended on how hard they pushed the car. I agree with you how hard they would have pushed the car, but they would have went all in and trying to find a new innovation to, to get a better battery. Maybe they would have been in better shape. But to your point, it would have been a niche car. It would have been, oh, I want that electric car because I have extra money to spend on it. Because 80 to 100 miles, that's not a whole lot. That's not a road trip. It's really not. It's got to fit your lifestyle, you know, and it, it, it's strange. We talk about if they push the car, if if you take a look at another very good hybrid car that came out from Chevrolet or GM uh, would be the Volt. And that went on sale at the very end of 2010. But the Volt never did more than 23,000 or 24,000 examples per year in the United States. And you added another 4,000 in Canada in its best years. So you're looking at a 30,000 example vehicle. And the Volt was pushed. I mean, this was a car that GM rallied behind after the recession and the bailout to show that, hey, we're technologically advanced. We have the ability to build a car that's not only uh, fuel efficient and green, but that people will want and will want to drive and own, et cetera, et cetera. And they put a lot of marketing might behind this vehicle. And this is still where they t- where they plateaued when in terms of uh, unit sales in a given year. I do remember that push and like it, it was a real like great looking vehicle too. Like unlike, you know, like what we were just kind of like joking around about. I mean, it's essentially like a, a really like, you know, uh, cleaned up looking, you know, Malibu, you know, that had that electric range and could, you know, take you from point A to point B without, you know, zero emissions. But yeah, it just, it's it seems like, as society, like we're just not quite there yet. Like, you know, we're in Tampa area and yeah, I mean, you know, there's a good amount of like charging stations, but it's not like really accessible. Like it, you know, it would be like if you were to rely solely on an electric car. And, and you kind of have to have one at your house. That's what it boils down to. Either you have one at home or you have one at work. And if you live in an apartment building, 
you don't necessarily have access to parking at the same level as someone who owns their own home or lives in the suburbs. So already you're cutting out a big swath of potential buyers right there. Uh, the other issue too is if you live in a northern climate, like I happen to to live in Montreal, and even you know, let's say Montreal down through Ohio, it gets cold enough in the winter where you're going to see a big reduction in range, maybe thirty percent, and that's the same reduction in efficiency you'd see in a gas powered vehicle. But in a gas vehicle, if you get worse mileage, you just go to the gas station more often. In a in an electric vehicle, if you get worse range, maybe you get stuck somewhere and you can't get home. So GM kept on pushing even through the mid-2000s, all the way up until 2009. This is after the big energy crisis that happened in America from 2003 to 2008. This is really getting into the time where GM and Chrysler both had the bailouts that happened in 2008. If they were sticking with the EV1 and possibly other electric cars, do they still have to get bailed out? Is the energy crisis, do they still get hit hard with that? I think I think the answer is definitely yes, because sales would have been a footnote compared to the amount of volume they were doing from full-size pickups and SUVs. Uh, that's the profit center for General Motors yeah. and pretty much any North American car company. So you you have that driving sales. The focus for marketing is on those vehicles because they generate so much cash for the company. If the EV1 is still there, it's interesting because you have to wonder if when the Volt came out, if all of the people who would have bought plug-in hybrids had already bought a Prius and were firmly invested in that family of vehicles. So perhaps if GM had kept the EV1 going from day one, the Prius would have had some competition, not necessarily in terms of market share initially, but in terms of mind space. And then you have this vehicle that is going to lead people into the Volt, which is more practical in the sense that you have gas if you need it, mm. in the sense that it's a plug-in hybrid. So that's kind of an interesting thought experiment. GM essentially seeded leadership of the plug-in, of the uh, battery-powered or the hybrid market to Toyota and Honda. And Toyota really ran away with it. So if they'd stayed in the game, you might have seen a more even distribution that would have played better for GM after the bailout when they could have rolled out the Volt and said, hey, here's the next generation of the EV1 and it's better in every way. But to your point, it still comes down to the big SUVs and those are not going away. In fact, I think I just read an article two months ago where Ford said they're going to stop selling cars altogether other than the Mustang and sell nothing but SUVs. Yeah, that's that's entirely where the market's gone in terms of share. Um, It's very hard to sell sedans these days. More people are buying crossovers and SUVs, which are essentially just lifted, mildly lifted sedans with a hatchback. And it's there. I mean, even if Ford has made the announcement that they're going to stop selling cars. But if you look at a company like Chrysler, they sell one car. The, The 300 is still on the market. But aside from that, they sell a van. And then if you look at Dodge, they sell the Charger and the Challenger, and everything else is either vans or crossovers. So there are companies that have already made this switch, and they've just kind of been stealthy about it or haven't made it a marketing point. And I think that there are some companies that are going to hold the hold the course they're on now. I don't see the Koreans, uh, Kia or Hyundai, stopping with sedans. 
uh, I think Toyota and Honda will continue to sell the Accord and the Camry and the Corolla and the Civic. And these are vehicles that are very well established. But it's just strange because Ford was looking at something like 250,000 units a year from the Fusion, and they just, which is a their their family sedan, and they just walked away from that. So. You have to wonder if volume was good for Ford, but they couldn't generate profit on that volume. So they decided to stick with vehicles where the profit profit margins were higher, which would be all of their SUVs. And that brings up my other point, too, with the electric car. Yes, the SUVs. And then the other part, the impact of the muscle car movement that we have for the past 10 years now, where you're having the Dodge Charger, the Challenger, the Mustang, um, Camaros, and then you have your high-end sports cars as well, too, like the Vet. Those are not going away. That's what the people want. Well, they certainly are very popular. Um, it's not necessarily all of the vehicles from the nameplates you mentioned being sold have the most powerful engines. I know that the they drive prestige for the car company. So people are like, well, you know, I can't necessarily afford the V8 Mustang, but I can get the turbo four cylinder and they look almost the same. So that's a it's kind of a halo model for a lot of those companies and it draws people into dealerships. But you're right, we're in the golden age of horsepower and these vehicles, the fuel mileage might not be as good as it could be, but it's certainly not horrible. And it's not nearly as bad as it was 20 years ago when you had a, a car that produced maybe half that horsepower and was considered the high performance model of that day. So there's been so many advances made with the internal combustion engine and there's so many advances yet to come. I mean, that motor is going to be that type of drivetrain, the gas burning drivetrain is going to be with us for a long time. And whether that's alongside a greater uh, slice of EVs in the, in the marketplace or whether it's uh, as part of a hybrid strategy, it's hard to know. But I know there are some people who feel that hybrid cars are merely a stepping stone between gas and electric, or even some people are feel that uh, hydrogen fuel cells are the way of the future. I personally don't see hydrogen as a viable source of fuel for vehicles. But uh, it's the point, I think, is it's hard to see the future. And there's a lot of companies that have a stake in their particular vision of the future. And that's what they're throwing their millions, if not billions of dollars behind. And GM decided that when they looked at the future, they didn't see the EV1 and they didn't see people swarming to embrace battery powered cars. And I think the numbers today, if you're looking at the number of battery powered cars on the road, they hold um, they, they certainly back up GM's assessment of the future. And whether that's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you can say, well, GM didn't see it in their future, so they didn't put the dollars behind it to make it happen. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. But if you look at other car companies that have tried to market EVs, almost all of those cars have been because of places like California legislating a requirement for an electric car, not because people were asking for them. And it's also safe to say that the Teslas, that's more of a lifestyle. Almost like when people buy an Apple. You know, that's a lifestyle choice that you're doing at that point. It's certainly brand driven and the brand has a cachet and it's also not an inexpensive vehicle to own. Regardless of the hype surrounding the Model 3, yes, now finally some affordable versions of that car are starting to trickle onto the market. But the majority of the cars that are bought from Tesla are fairly high option cars that are between fifty dollars and $100,000 depending on how they're specced. So that's an if I think uh, there's been some data recently that says the most trade-ins for a Tesla are European luxury sedans. So that's the that's who the market base is. They're shifting from traditional luxury into this kind of green, um, environmentally friendly look luxury, but also the fact that the Teslas are quite fast and have similar performance to the gas engine cars that they're replacing in the mental space of people shopping in the luxury segment. And they are nice inside. 
I've been in a couple of them now. They are definitely nice inside. So, Benjamin, do you ever see a time or a place where we're off gas completely? I think that eventually on a long enough timeline, sure. Uh, I think what will have to happen, though, is a better or cheaper or easier to use form of energy storage has to replace it. You can't legislate the uh, gasoline engine out of existence. I don't think that will work, but I do think that technology will eventually replace it, whether that's 30 years from now or 80 years from now, I can't say. Uh, It's hard even to get a handle on how much fuel or sorry, uh, crude oil is left in the ground. Um, Every year, it seems like we're reaching peak oil and then new discoveries are made or new types of processing or efficiencies are made when you pull the oil out of the ground and take it to a refinery. It also depends on how countries choose to act in terms of global warming and how serious they get about legislating environmental protection. That will play a role as well. But I do think we're looking at several more decades of the internal combustion engine. Maybe not diesel. Maybe that will be the one to go first. But I think gas is here for quite a long time. Unfortunately, I agree with you. Unless a company truly gets behind getting off gas, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Why shake the boat? I mean, pretty much that's what GM did. They put the test out there. They did not like the numbers, so they pulled the plug. Literally, they pulled the plug. It also depends, too, on technology, though. Technology is not a savior in all cases, but the reason gasoline is so effective is that it's a very energy-dense medium. And a gallon of gas has a lot of energy in it that you can extract with an internal combustion engine. If you could create a battery that offered not just a similar level or, or greater level of energy density, but the ability to be replenished as quickly as gasoline, that's when you're going to start to see a move towards electric cars outside of the luxury segment because they'll be more practical for people on an everyday basis. And the cost of that technology would have to match the current costs of internal combustion cars. Even though there are rebates available at the federal and the state level in terms of taxes for people in some areas who buy um, EVs, I don't think that's enough of an incentive. I think you have to have an actual business case for the technology as well as a technology case in order to see larger scale adoption. Yeah, agreed. Because if that's your only car, there's no way you could go on a road trip. Exactly. At this point, there's no way in hell you go on a road trip. Unless you can afford a Tesla and unless you can afford to, you know, break your road trip up into segments that match the superchargers that you'll find out on the road. And unless those superchargers are actually on the route you plan to take. So that's a lot of ifs. <laughs> that's a lot of ifs. That is a lot of ifs. And how long does it take to um, charge? That that I don't know offhand. I know there's several different batteries you can buy with the Tesla. Uh, I think you're looking at 30 minutes to 40 minutes to get close to 80%. Um, but beyond that, I, I wouldn't be able to provide you with that information. Even now, I would rather just stop at a gas station, fill up in about, what, two minutes, and then be on my way. You exactly. Exactly. You cannot beat that. Yeah. You know, I've loved cars my whole life, and I would love to see electric cars work. I would love to see a future where it makes sense and where they're on the roads and I don't begrudge their existence. And I don't think that there's a lot of people romanticize, you know, gas engines and I do too, to a certain point, but I also realize there are realities that are going to have to shift us away from this type of fuel. And I'm completely okay with that. Uh, But what I want to see is 
the technology and a business case for these vehicles that makes sense so that we can finally start adopting them in larger numbers. I completely agree with that. It's just a matter of time before that next big you know, technological advancement. It's, I don't know if it's going to be battery powered, you know, like what we have now, or if it's going to be something else, but you know, it's, that's what we're, we're waiting on. So. You know what though? I saw this movie the other day and I forgot the name of it, but the guy was driving some type of car, but he was able to use trash as fuel. Oh, it was called Back to the Future. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Doc Brown and the biofuel for the win every time. But that's like an actual thing now, too, though. There are some, like, vehicles that are rigged to run on, like, trash. Yeah, there there have been wood-burning cars available for decades, if that's your thing. If you want to load up the pickup bed with wood and head out on the road, you can do that, too. I mean, they're not efficient, (laughs) but you you can do it. And that's going to do it this week. Thank you for tuning in. If you want to know more about Benjamin or his podcast, you can head over to their website. Just head to www.unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. You can also check out their podcast. Again, they're on Apple and or all of the major players. And they also have an Instagram account. Just look for Hunting Benjamin. Yes, he reversed his first and last name. So again, look for Hunting Benjamin. You can't miss it. There's a ton of sweet looking cars. Pretty cool stuff. In fact, I'm looking at it right now as we speak. Thank you again, Benjamin, for joining. If you want to know more about Histories What If, check out our website. We're at www.historieswhatif.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Again, just look for Histories What If. That is going to do it for us this week. On behalf of Pug and the Professor, I am the Dr. Philip Reese. We will talk to you again next week on Monday. Take care. Bye.